All right, 2 Corinthians 3, here's what we're doing. We're looking at this book, and we just kind of titled this A New Way to Live. Um, our hope and our desire is kind of looking at 2020, going into this year, 2021, and we're saying, God, there needs to be like a detox in many ways from what we've kind of walked through. And we want to look at what does it mean to follow Jesus? How do we follow Jesus? 2 Corinthians really is a phenomenal way of saying, you are a new creation in Christ. And in light of that, here's how you are to live. Here's how you are to walk it out. So we're looking at this book as a new way to live. Now, keep in mind, Paul planted this church. He spent 18 months here, a year and a half here. At Acts 18, it says that. He loves this church deeply. He wrote to this church more than any other church. That is important. That's significant. Obviously, he cared for this church. This is most likely third or even fourth Corinthians because Paul mentions other letters that we don't have. So the idea is Paul wrote a lot to this church. He loved this church, and this was a messy church. This was a messed up church. Paul's first letter, he had to call them out on a lot of sin issues. There's a lot of things going on that were like not healthy. And this letter is different. This letter, he's comforting them. He's more of like the role of a father saying, I just want to comfort you and encourage you and remind you. And so that the language is kind of changing here. Now, last week, just so you kind of know what we're walking into, we looked at this idea of even when it feels like we're losing, we are triumphant in Christ. Paul talks about that. Paul talks about loss after loss, but then he says, but we are more triumphant in Christ. We're part of this triumphal procession, he says, this, this triumphal parade saying, even though there's loss, we have victory in Christ. And I just want to stress that because even though there's loss, we have victory in Christ. And then he ends that section by saying, you know what? There are those who cheapen the word of God. They peddle it or they water it down. He goes, we're not those kind of men. We're men of sincerity. We're sent out by God. And we're going to see, as we've been talking about, in the first couple of chapters, Paul kind of feels the need to defend himself. There are people saying, Paul, you're not the real deal. You're fake. You're phony. You're counterfeit. Uh, Paul, we, we know that you're not a man of your word. You said you'd be here, but you're not here. And so there's people questioning Paul. So what we're going to see is Paul defending himself a little bit more here. And here's how we're going to kind of approach the text, because this is what we see. We see here today, and the title today is The DNA of an Effective Ministry. The DNA of an Effective Ministry. Paul's like, here's my credentials. Here's my confidence. Here's where my confidence comes from. And he says, and here's the message we preach, this new covenant. So we're going to break this down from that kind of vantage point of an effective ministry. What does it look like? And all of you have a ministry, the ministry of reconciliation, to reconcile the world to God. All of you are to be people who bring God's will and God's kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. Now, how do we do that? What happens when people misunderstand or misjudge us? How do we go about that? How do we live in light of that? So Paul kind of shows us his perspective on how to have an effective ministry. All right, so let's just read this. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Um, we'll actually go to the last verse in chapter 2, verse 17. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse uh, 1, but look, look, look at chapter 2, verse 17. Paul says, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Verse one, he says, are we then beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. 
And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Everyone say amen. Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. You know, this week in my study, I was so challenged, like tempted to do the whole chapter, because you need to see this in context. We'll break it down more next week, because Paul is going to be comparing and contrasting the old covenant with the better new covenant we have. But what I want us to see, I don't want us to miss out on, is just Paul's heart to explain, listen, even though you question me, even though you, you don't know if you, you, I need a letter of recommendation for you, I want you to remember my credentials, who I am. You're, you're written on our hearts. And Paul's basically walking through what does it look like for us to have an effective ministry. And, and I just want to pray and just invite the Lord to speak to us because I know that this could be one of those texts or topics where you're like, what's in this for me? There's so much here for us. There's so much here. The, the letter, he says, the law, it kills. The Spirit gives life. And we just want to pray that God would just give us life, that God would breathe on us, that God would speak to us, and that we could actually carry this out and not, not just hear it, but do it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who is promised to us, who is given to us. God, that we are sealed by the Spirit, that your Spirit comes and dwells in us, that that down payment we've studied, that you bought us at a price, and we want to glorify you now, God, in our body and in our spirit, which are yours. And Father, I just ask that um, just throughout life, as we get challenged, critiqued, frustrated, exhausted, tired in ministry, that we would find our sufficiency in you, that Jesus, you are enough. Lord, we ask that you would just speak to us, you remind us, that God, you would just reveal your truth to us, that you would save those who you want to save today, that you would just encourage those you want to encourage. Lord, we're just really open to what it is you want to do, and we just ask this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. You know, for every well product that's made, there's a counterfeit. For every like high quality product, right, there's going to be a knockoff, there's going to be a phony, there's going to be some sort of counterfeit. And you can think about this, ladies, maybe it's a purse for some high quality purse. I was trying to think of somebody, I just don't know the names. Or uh, for a high quality watch, I mean, there's going to be counterfeits. There's going to be phonies for some nice artwork. There's a lot of fake artwork and phony artwork. I mean, you name the product, there's going to be a knockoff of it. There's going to be a counterfeit of it of some sort. I was actually going online just trying to look at like modern day counterfeits of things. And I thought some of these are pretty great, so I'd share them. I know you've heard of like uh, the Lion King and you've heard of Chewbacca, but have you seen the lion thing? I saw this for sale online. I'm like, I love this. The next one was pretty great. Uh, it's based off a TV show. Um, here's a restaurant called, you can put it up. It's called Baking Bread, based off a show called Breaking Bad. I just like the look of it, kind of funny to me. Uh, and the next one's food-based, too. Now, I thought this would fit really well. We all like Kit Kat bars, but have you had, I think it's called a Cat Cot bar. 
Like, these are for sale. You can get these, right? For everything that's, like, real out there, the things that we enjoy, things that we love, there's always going to be a knockoff. It's funny. Obviously, last year, people got really into, like, uh, The Mandalorian, Baby Yoda. So one of our friends for uh, Christmas got my daughter, who wasn't even two yet. Uh, she wanted to get her a Baby Yoda. And so when the Baby Yoda arrived, here's what arrived at our house, which I thought was great. A scary, freaky little gremlin. Like, they gave my daughter a gremlin for Christmas. I'm like, wow. Like, that was supposed to be Baby Yoda. All right, for everything of a value... There's going to be a counterfeit or knock. You can put that away because that freaks all of us out. Um, for everything of value, there's a knockoff. My wife and I had the privilege of going to Corinth and of, of going to Ephesus and biblical sites back in 2012. And I thought it was funny because everywhere you go, there's knockoffs. There's fake. They're selling fake coins. They're selling fake things from that era. And at the end of like these entrances, you could buy some like fake watches, things like that. And I saw this sign and I took a picture of it because I thought it was just perfect. At least they're kind of honest. It said genuine fake watches, right? Not like, like hey, we don't have the fake, fake watches. Like, we have the, the genuine fake watches. Like, these ones are actually fake. I don't even know what the difference is. But I just thought it was funny the way they worded that. For anything of value, there's going to be a knockoff. Now, here's why this is important. Paul is being accused of being a counterfeit, of being a knockoff, like Paul is. Paul has to not only defend his ministry, but say, no, no, you're the counterfeit. There are people going around saying, Paul is not an apostle. Paul does not keep his word. Paul is not even that good of a speaker. Why do we even listen to this guy? I mean, they're kind of mocking Paul in First and Second Corinthians, and Paul at different points has to commend himself. He says, are we commending ourselves again? He has to stand up for himself a little bit here. And so as we walk through this, and, and Paul, by the way, calls these people the Judaizers. Uh, you can read this in different epistles. Throughout the New Testament, Paul basically speaks about a group of people who they call themselves followers of Jesus, but they said, believe in Jesus and keep the law. Like, it's not enough to believe in Jesus. You need to believe in Jesus and be circumcised. You need to believe in Jesus and do the Ten Commandments. And then you're really going to be sanctified, and then you're really going to be right with God. And Paul has to say, no, it's not Jesus plus something. It's Jesus plus nothing. All right? You have to be really clear. The gospel's not Jesus plus something else. It's Jesus plus nothing. So this is who Paul is speaking against. Now, as I said, what does the DNA of a healthy ministry look like? Here's how we're going to kind of break down our text today. We see Paul's credentials. Paul tells us his credentials. Then we see Paul's confidence, where his confidence comes from. And lastly, we're going to see the covenant, the new covenant, the covenant Paul mentions. So in these six verses, as we break this down, we're going to see credentials, confidence, and covenant. All right, let's look at the first one today. Paul's credentials. He's like, don't forget who I am. All right, look at chapter three, verse one. Who is Paul? He goes, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation uh, to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you know that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Paul's credentials. What is Paul saying here? This is really interesting. They're accusing Paul, saying, Paul, you're not really an apostle. Actually, if Paul were to come back here, he needs to bring a letter with him of recommendation. And Paul says, I need a letter of recommendation to you. He goes, you are my letter of recommendation. He goes, if the proof is in the pudding, you are the pudding. Like, this is it. You are that. You are that letter of recommendation. See, this was a common thing. Actually, a lot of church history talks about this. At uh, different points in time, there are false prophets or apostles going out to different churches saying, listen to me, I'm sent by God. So early on, the church would actually send letters of recommendation to go with you. The idea was Paul, actually, when he wrote the book of Romans, sent Phoebe a letter of recommendation. He affirms Phoebe and who she is and what she did. Apollos, who we see in the book of Acts, was a follower of Jesus. He too had to go with letters of recommendation because they're like, who's Apollos? Now, 
Basically, there's some people saying if Paul were to come back, he needs a letter of recommendation. And Paul's like, I write letters of recommendation, right? Like, I don't need one written for me. That's like what I do. You are my letter of recommendation. Now, I think this is fascinating. I've written a few letters of recommendation before. I've written quite a few for different colleges for students or uh, people trying to get jobs. You know, and it's interesting. You're trying to give them, like, you know, validate their character, validate who they are. They wanted this for Paul. And Paul's like, no, no, that is you. It's not written on paper. It's written on your heart. You're the transformation. You're the fruit of my recommendation. Like, what do you mean? Like, you are the example of it. Here's why this is important. Here's our takeaway. Like, what does this mean for me? Here's what we should be looking for in an effective ministry in others' lives and in our lives, which is this. Fruit is what we look for. Fruit is what we look for. If we want to know, like, am I legit or is this person legit, we look for fruit. Meaning when I say fruit, that could be like a Christian term a lot of times, uh, but the Bible uses this, word, this idea of fruit. The evidence or fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Or fruit could just be, do we see transformation? Do we see changed lives? Is the gospel really working? Are we just playing games here, trying to entertain people here? What is this? There should always be fruit where people truly are experiencing the grace of God in such a way where it's leading to transformation in, in other areas of their life, ultimately every area of their life but we should start to see transformation taking place. And Paul says, you are that. You want, you want fruit? Paper's not going to be that. You want evidence? It's not going to be paper. It's you. It's you guys. Now, here's why this is interesting to me. The Bible constantly has this idea of what we should look for in others is fruit, right? There is that idea throughout the Bible. Actually, in, in the book of Numbers, chapters 16 and 17, uh, maybe you've heard of Korah and Korah's rebellion. Here's a guy, Korah, we took a few friends, and they go to Moses, and they're like, Moses, who are you? Who do you think you are to lead us? We're all Jewish people here. We're all God's people. We're all holy, he says. We're all sanctified and set apart. Who are you to lead God's people? Moses, who is called by God, responds in a way I, I kind of can't believe. He like falls on his face just in humility, and he goes, okay. He's like, I didn't choose this, right? I didn't want to do this. I actually ran from this. God chose me to do this, but here's what we can do. He says, why don't we describe a censor? And whatever censors filled with fire from God, that's who God chose. And so these men come together. They bring 250 others with them. And they go, okay, let's just see who God speaks, who God chooses here. Moses' censor is lit. Basically, God's saying, he's mine, right? And then you read number 16. It says, the earth opens up and swallows these guys, <laughs> right? That's what happened when they came against Moses. Now, that doesn't end there. In number 17, people are like, yo, Moses, that's messed up. Like, they were like some of our leaders. We like these guys. What are you doing? And so Moses goes, you know what, God, I didn't choose this. God chose me for this. But God tells him basically, hey, all these, all these people that want maybe a new leader, I want you to take the 12 tribes, the 12 leaders, grab their rod, grab their staff from these 12 tribes, and we're going to bring these staffs to the tabernacle of meeting, and we're going to leave them there. And whatever staff buds or bears fruit, that's the staff God has chosen. So Aaron, being from the tribe of Levi, represents Levi. He comes and brings his staff. And here's what it says in Numbers 17, uh, verse 8. It says, the staff of Aaron from that the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced uh, blossoms and it bore ripe almonds. The next day they go and they see Aaron's staff and it's just bearing fruits. It's bearing almonds, flowers. It's, it's alive. And God's saying, obviously, hey, where there's fruit, there's calling. Where there's fruit, I'm affirming this. I'm in this. I'm a part of this. See, this goes back to what Jesus said in Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, speaking of false shepherds and wolves and sheep's clothing, he said this phrase we maybe know very well. He says simply what? You will know them by their fruits. You will know them by their fruits. Fruit is what we look for. Fruit is what we look for. 
Whether that comes to being a follower of Jesus and people who, I'm a follower of Jesus, we look for fruits. Is there evidence that backs that up? If there's a leader or ministry that we're saying, is God in this? Is there true transformation, true fruit, true fruit of the Spirit? Not activity, not fake fruit, but true fruit. And this is what basically is, is being inferred here. Paul's going, you are that. That's you guys. You want a letter of recommendation? Here's one way I try to write it. The test of ministry is simply change lives. The test of ministry is change lives. Or another way of saying it is the best credentials are people, not paper. I really want this to stick for a little bit. The best credentials in life are people, not paper. We will work so hard for a piece of paper we get from school. We'll go to school for years and years on end, and there's nothing wrong with school. There's nothing with furthering. There's nothing wrong with furthering your education or getting. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. But you will invest our lives into getting a piece of paper. For those who just went straight to work, you'll invest your lives to get money to get paper. And we think sometimes paper is what we're after. We're after validation academically. We're after paper monetarily. And this gives us me worth. This gives me value. This is the fruit of my labor. The Bible says it's not the best credentials is not paper, but it's people. Meaning at the end of your life, it's not how many degrees you have in your name. It's not how much paper money you've accumulated. At the end of your life, your legacy will be based off of people, not paper. I think this is incredibly important. They want a paper from Paul. Give us. Who, who, who's sending you? Paul's like, I don't have paper. I have you. I have people. The best credentials are people. Meaning, guys, obviously, at the end of our life, what you and I have done for Jesus, how we've invested in people, that will go way further than any sort of paper will. You know, I just want to introduce you to meet to someone in my life who was like a hero in the faith for me. There's a guy named Chuck Smith who essentially started the Calvary Chapel family or movement. Now, maybe you've heard of him, maybe not, and that's totally fine. This, in Southern California, this was basically in the 60s and 70s. God used this man and a really group of men and women to really kind of rebirth like a revival in America, and it's called the Jesus Revolution or the Jesus Movement. This actually was actually, this was on Time Magazine, I think in 1972, of the Jesus Revolution, and is written about this. And it's crazy to think, this was probably the last American revival happened, you could say maybe in Southern California, they kind of spread to different parts of America, but actually historians will say the last Christian revival took place was the Jesus Revolution or the Jesus Movement. Now, this guy, you could say in some ways might have been like the center of that, or God, who God used to help birth that. Now, I'm bringing him up because this was the pastor of our church. I, I knew him more in his 60s, 70s, and 80s than, I, than people do in his 40s. I love it because if you see this guy, like, in the 60s and 70s, he's, like, in his 40s, he's balding, and he's, like, reaching hippies, which does not make sense. He was not relatable at all. He was, like, a put-together guy, and God used him to reach people. And there's, like, pictures in these magazines of just thousands of people getting baptized, like, in the ocean uh, during this, this movement. They're leaving, whether you, they're kind of, like, hippie lifestyle, sleeping with anyone and everyone everyone, just kind of doing whatever they wanted, taking anything, drinking anything. And then eventually they just like woke up to Jesus. Like Jesus is what we've been looking for all this time. And there's like different pictures of the, the baptism where just thousands would get baptized. Now, this was a guy that really means a lot to me, to our family. When I was 18, we asked him, just said, hey, listen, you've invested in so many people. Would you ever think about like investing in, in like like 18-year-olds again. And he's like, I'd love to. And so for about a year and a half, every Friday, me and a group of friends, we'd meet with him on Fridays. And we just go through books of the Bible. We just ask any question. And honestly, it was so life-changing. And I remember, you know, he actually passed away in October of 2013, which is crazy. I think it's been eight years. But I was living here at the time. And I'm like, I can't like, I have to go back home for his memorial. She's like, go. So I flew back home, October of 2013, to his memorial, and they had his, like, funeral, his memorial at Anaheim Pond. Um, Anaheim Pond is where, like, the ducks play, the Anaheim Ducks. No one probably knows who they are. It's okay. Um, but they had his memorial there, and it's a stadium that holds, like, 18,000 people. It was full. The ground floor is full. 
And I just remember like person after person getting up and just sharing. It's about four-hour-long memorial, just honoring this guy's life. And it's talking through how God used them to change them and change so many others. Now, even worldwide, there's about 1,700 Calvary chapels, and it started with this guy about 50 years ago. And just here's why just I'm bringing this up. It's, it, even during the memorial, as much as his life led an incredible legacy, I, all I was hearing was Jesus, 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 Jesus. Even though it seemed to be about him, it wasn't about him. Even though people wanted to make it about him, he'd constantly say, don't make it about me. If anything good happens, it's because of Jesus. Like, I can't, I don't even dare try to get the credit. I remember one time he's like, people will try to build a statue of me. Don't let them do it when I die. They don't need to remember me. They remember Jesus. Here's why I'm just bringing this up. His legacy was one of investing in people. And I remember just from a young age, he's like, go, get further your education. Like, study, read, love the word of God, give yourself over to it. But you must invest in people. Like the main thing was, who cares if you have all of the degrees in the world or all of the money in the world and your life just ends, but you did not invest in people. And the main takeaway, honestly, was the best credential in life is people. Like what validates your life? He's saying, did you invest in people? Did you love on people? Did you pour into people? Here's the thing I want to leave with us. What is our legacy that we're leaving? Paul is saying, you're my legacy. You're my validation. My validation. You're my credentials. Like, you guys are, are what validates my ministry. It's the life change and transformation. Here's the thing. I, I, I really hope if our church could just take up this mantle of, of all of us have the responsibility to be invested in and to invest in others, that all of us want to be, need to be invested in, and we also want to give what was been given. Like, the greatest legacy you will leave, again, is not, let, not, not just how much can I make in this life and just die and leave it to my kids. The greatest legacy is invest in your kids. On Mother's Day, what a great topic, invest in your children invest into your future family, invest into your church family, just invest and pour into the things of God, the spirit of God. That's why when we're trying to talk about financial peace, I don't want to just make an announcement of financial peace. Like we want to disciple people. We want to pour to people. We want to say, hey, steward what God has given you. Don't think you know it all. Come humble, come teachable, come ready to learn and grow, come ready to be challenged. That's why we do community groups. We're saying, let people pour into you, pour into others as well. Like we want this to truly be a community following Jesus. And to do that, we're going to need to be with each other. And we're going to need to come with a teachable heart and come ready to teach as well. And see, again, I think this is the greatest credential you and I could ever leave. Listen, transform lives are the best credentials you can have. And I really think that sometimes we miss it. I think that sometimes I miss it. We can get so caught up in the busyness and just kind of like that, that hamster wheel of life. How can I make more money? How can I have more experiences? How can I, 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 and it's so self-focused. And I think the best legacy you and I can leave is investing in people, is pouring into people, is shaping people in the form in the name of Jesus. I think this is the greatest thing you and I can do. And I would love for us to give ourselves over to this. You see, Paul is saying to them, you guys have been radically changed and you're asking me for my credentials? There would be no church here if I didn't plant it. He's like, you're asking me for credentials? Now, here's what's funny about this. We know how much they, like, what they've been saved from. I mean, when I say this like a wild church where they got saved, I mean, they kind of came out of every background, every kind of lifestyle, and, and then Jesus has radically transformed their lives. I mentioned this verse before, but it's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Just read the context of what they've been saved from. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. He goes, this was you. You've been transformed. Such were some of you. God has called you out of different types of lifestyles. He's washed you, redeemed you, regenerated you, made you brand new. This is not who you are anymore. Such were some of you. See, Paul goes, this is my legacy. It's, it's that, that Jesus Christ has transformed your life. Church, I got, I, my thing is, I want you to be a part of this. Like, I really want everyone here to be part of this. I don't want anyone to think for just a second, it's for myself or key few people within the church. You are part of this legacy to transform lives with the gospel and the grace of Jesus. Obviously, I could never transform. I could never change anyone. The gospel of Jesus can, the grace of Jesus can, and he's called us to this. And this is truly the greatest legacy you and I could leave at all in any way. This is so important. And then Paul, by the way, he catches on that he's like boasting almost in himself. And then he realizes, no, that boast is in Jesus. Look at verse three. He says, you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Paul, as we will see more next week, is going to start comparing and contrasting the old covenant with the new covenant. And he looks at this tablets of stone. So the idea was the 10 commandments were written on tablets of stone, but he's saying now, but God is writing on not tablets of stone, but on tablets of hearts. Like God is writing on your flesh, on your hearts. He's no longer saying, here's what you should do. Now we can never do it. Like the law says not to murder, not to commit adultery, not to covet. Jesus takes a step further and says, you know what? When you have hatred in your heart, you've murdered that person. When you've lusted, you've committed adultery. See, the law can tell me what to do and what not to do, but it can't give me the power to do it. The law can say, here's what to do and here's what not to do, but it leaves me helpless and vulnerable because I have no power to do that. I know what I should do, but I'm incredibly weak. The Holy Spirit comes in the new covenant and says, not only here's what you should do and how to do it, but I empower you to do it. That you don't have to do it alone or in your strength. Don't even try to do it in your strength. That you can't even, you can't even do it. So God says, I've written on the tablets of your heart. I've given you the spirit. So Paul says, here's my credentials. Now this leads to number two, his sufficiency. Like, what is this? This leads to his confidence. This leads to, he goes, here's why I'm so confident in this. Look at verse four for number two of confidence. He says, verse four, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Or we have to get this. Paul's like, you think maybe I'm boasting in myself for a second? No, no. My sufficiency, my confidence comes from God. Anything good you see in my life comes from God. Any strength you see, any transformation you see, that is to that was through Christ. That is from God. I don't want to boast myself for just a second. He has to like remind them that I have no strength, but Jesus has all the strength. He's saying, I don't want to boast and sound like I'm something because I'm not something. I'm nothing. My sufficiency comes from Jesus. I love what Martin Luther said about this. He said, God made man out of nothing, and as long as we are nothing, he can make something out of us. God made us out of nothing. As long as you keep that in mind, as long as you remember that you are made out of nothing, we are nothing, he can make something out of us. When I am weak, then I am strong. I mean, this is like the theme of 2 Corinthians. Paul is saying, my sufficiency, my strength, my confidence comes from God. It is funny because when you think about this, I think Christians can act obviously in one of two ways. Either we walk around with a lack of confidence 
and that's not biblical, or we walk around with a confidence that's based on ourselves or our, compliment, our accomplishments, and that's not biblical either. See, we should have confidence. Absolutely, we should have confidence. But where does that come from? It comes from Christ. Our sufficiency, our confidence comes from Jesus. I could never do this, but Jesus in me could. And that's where Paul is saying my sufficiency stems from and comes from. I mean, maybe you know this verse, but I so love this. This is the same thought Paul introduced in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Listen to this. We'll put it up here and just enjoy this verse. 1 Corinthians 1.20. 26. He says, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. That means if God is using you, boast in your foolishness. Like God uses the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. Like no one, no one can boast in their giftings, their talents, their abilities. All of that's from God. I mean, it is unbelievable to think that those who have crazy natural like athleticism, or they're born with that voice, or they're born with just great leadership skills or qualities, and they can think differently, or they're a visionary. All of that is God's. All that comes from God. Once you think, like, this is from me, you're, you're missing the point. Like, if anything, if God uses you, that just affirms your foolishness and weakness. Amen? Like, this is a good news. Like, if God ever uses you, it's like, wow, God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Like, basically, boast in that foolishness. Like, yeah, it's definitely not me. This is Christ. He is our sufficiency comes from God. Our confidence comes from God. It, there could never be within me, there's nothing that good dwells, Romans 7 says. Nothing good in me dwells. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, comes from the Father of lights who gives freely. The point is, if you have any ability, any talent, any gifting, any way, maybe you're just naturally good at building relationships. Maybe you're naturally good at making money. Maybe you're naturally good at some sort of sport or some sort of musical, whatever, and you can just harness that. All of that comes from God. There's no no room for boasting. When people want to say, wow, how did you do that? Look what you did. Look what you built in your lifetime. You go, man, that was definitely Jesus. Because me, no, not for me. Like boast in the, God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. There's something where Paul is saying, hey, God used us to bring transformation, but even that was, that came from Christ. Our confidence comes from him. Our sufficiency comes from him. Everything comes from him. I love what one Scottish pastor said about this. He says, it is not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. The idea is, it's not so much about your talents. God doesn't need that. I do agree with that saying, that God doesn't uh, call the qualified. He qualifies the called. God doesn't call those who are already qualified. God calls you, therefore you're qualified. God, and, God, and this idea of, you know what, what does God need? Does he need my talents, my abilities? No. He just needs us to be like Jesus. And as we're like Jesus, watch out. Watch what God can do. I think God is more willing to use those who are like Jesus with less giftings than those who have a lot of giftings, but they're not like Jesus. God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. See, this is what Paul said. Our sufficiency, our confidence, that does not stem from us. It stems from Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said about this text, listen to this. He says, our sufficiency is of God. Let us practically enjoy this truth. We are poor leaking vessels. And the only way for us to keep full is to put our pitcher under the perpetual flow of boundless grace. Then despite its leakage, the cup will always be full to the brim. 
you realize I'm just a leaky vessel. I'm just a leaky cup. God, pour, pour your grace upon me and in me, and I'll constantly be full because I'm going to leak. I'm going to leak it out. When I am weak, then I am strong. Our sufficiency comes from Christ. I mean, is this not what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15? Last verse on this, but Paul says, uh, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. By the grace of God, I am what I am. You are what you are by the grace of God. If there's anything good in your life, it's the grace of God. When you're tempted to take credit, don't you dare. Don't you, you can't. I can't. The mind he's given you, the breath he's given you, God, I am what I am by the grace of Paul said. And he goes, you know what? And this grace was not wasted. This grace was not in vain. I actually used that grace and worked harder than everyone, yet not I, but the grace of God. He even still, bo- in his boasting of like how hard he works, he's like, but even my hard work ethic comes from grace. He acknowledged that everything comes from grace. This is so key in life. You know, this is so freeing. Can I tell you, this is why the gospel is so offensive. Do do we understand the gospel is offensive? I mean, for those who are well accomplished, for those who are well schooled, for those who who naturally make a lot of money, for those who do whatever, the gospel is saying none of that matters. The gospel says, I don't care how successful you are. I don't care how unsuccessful you are. Your identity is not wrapped up or tied up in your accomplishments. It's wrapped up and tied up in what Christ has done for you. And that honestly, that hurts. It means like I can't boast. When people want to say, wow, look at you. you, you can't, you have nothing to boast about. Like the gospel should offend all of us. It's based on you're all broken. You're all needy. It's funny when people you talk to say, well, I don't really need the gospel. The gospel's for like broken people, hurting people. It's like you too need that. You too are broken and needy. Like until you understand and see that, like Jesus said, I did not come for the righteous, but for the sick. I did not come for those who think they're good. I came for those who are sick. And once you realize that everyone is sick, all of us are broken. All of us need Jesus. All of us need saving. It's not like, oh, this is only for those who are really broken and messed up. It's like, no, no, that all of us are dead in our sins. We all need this. My thing for this is, but once you can find your identity, not in your accomplishments, not in what you've done, but in the finished work of the Christ, this is so freeing because one, it can't get to your head and two, it can't get to your heart. Tim Keller said this, maybe I've read it before, but he says, if our identity is in our work rather than Christ, success will go to our heads and failure will go to our hearts hearts. If our identity is in our work, listen, when you're successful, it, it goes to your head. Like, yeah, I'm just pretty clever. I'm just pretty smart. Like, I'll go to your head. When you fail, it goes to your heart. My identity is tied up in this. See, here's the thing. Even for myself, I have to realize when things go well, the grace of God. When things go poorly, I boast in the grace of God. My, my point is my identity can't be wrapped up in things going well or things going poorly. It has to be wrapped up in who Jesus is, my relationship with him, what he's done for me. It can't be wrapped up in my accomplishments or lack of accomplishments. It has to be wrapped up in the person of Jesus, knowing Jesus, enjoying Jesus. Find your identity based in him. Then your head can't ever get too elevated and your heart ever can't ever fall too low because your identity is not in yourself. Your identity is in Christ. Amen? See, Paul goes, this is my confidence. My sufficiency, my confidence is in him. And then Paul ends with now this message he preaches of this new covenant. It says number three, covenant. Let's see what he says in verse six. Verse six, Paul says, remember, our sufficiency is from God, verse six, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Paul mentions the new covenant here. This is the second time only that Paul ever says the words new covenant here and in 1 Corinthians 11. But Paul introduces this idea that there are two covenants in the Bible. There's one essentially that God made a covenant with Moses through the law, through the commandments. And then there's this new covenant that we have in Christ. Now, I want to point this out and just kind of make sure this is really, really clear. 
The law, he says, or the letter, the letter kills, the spirit gives life. The letter refers to the law. The spirit refers to grace. See, the first covenant, the covenant of the letter or the covenant of the law was based off what you do. It's based off keep these commandments. And if you do that, God's like, I'm with you. Like, obey this way. Remember, if you do this, then this will happen. We decided that a couple weeks ago. Now, the new covenant is not based off law. It's based off grace. It's based off what God has done, not what we do, what God has done. And now it's, it's called like the covenant of the spirit or the covenant of grace, this new covenant. Now, I think this is so important. I, I want to make sure this is understood. Uh, the new covenant does not abolish the law. It establishes the law in the only place it will be effective in the heart. The new covenant does not abolish the law. It puts the law in the only place it will actually work in the heart. See, this is so important. Let's break this phrase down. The letter kills, the spirit gives life. The letter kills, the spirit gives life. He says, for the letter, the law, it kills, the spirit gives life. Okay, the first part, the letter kills, the law kills. What is this referring to? Paul in Romans 7 really unpacks this idea of how the law kills. Paul's like, the law kills, man. It killed me. Paul says this in Romans 7, verse 9. Listen to this. Paul says, I was once, or I was alive once without the law. But when the commandments came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. Here's what's interesting. Paul's like, before the law, I was kind of doing fine. But then when the law kind of revealed to me, oh wait, I am a sinner. It brought death. The point he actually uses was about coveting. Paul says, when the law said, do not covet, I realized, oh my goodness, I covet. He covet. He's going, I never would have seen myself as a coveter if it wasn't for the law. Now the point of the law was to bring life. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not covet. All of those things were actually to bring you life. Like, if you obey God's word, you will have fullness of life. But he goes, you know what the law did? It, it kind of backfired. It revealed death because all I saw was I was constantly a sinner. I constantly fell short of the law. I constantly couldn't keep the law. It actually brought death to me, brought shame, guilt, showed me that I fell really short of the law. And he says the law, which was to bring life, brought death. Another way the law brings death is ultimately that, the idea that we will not just physically die, but eternally die if we cannot keep the law. Like, obviously, God cannot abide with people or anyone that is unclean or unholy. So we are unclean and unholy. How do we bridge that gap? And the Old Testament is through the sacrificial system. How do we do that today? It's through the blood of Jesus. Now, the idea, though, is the letter of the law that killed. He goes, that's what it does. The law just kills. Paul would actually go on to say this in Romans 7, verse 4. Paul says, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. All right, now stay with me. Romans 7 is so profound. Paul relates the covenant between God and Moses, between God and man, through like a marriage covenant. Now, this is so key. Stay with me. The idea is this. We in our marriage vows say what? For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, till, till death do us part. We say something along those lines saying, I'm in this till death. Paul in Romans 7 says, the covenant between God and man was till death. This covenant could never be broken unless one party died. Now, even though we broke the law, even though we broke the covenant, and we should have died by breaking the covenant, in fact, for that law, for that covenant to ever end, one party has to die. The crazy thing is, we didn't die. The crazy thing is for that covenant to end, for us to get out of it, one person of the party had to die, either God or man. Man didn't die. God's like, let me take on the form of a man and then I'll die. 
It's crazy to think that this covenant between God and man, even though we broke it and should have died, God died. So we could get out of that covenant and now be in a new covenant. The idea is like, you can't be remarried unless that first covenant's over. And he's saying, you know what happened? We died. We died to the law. Because why? Because Christ died. That that covenant is dead to us now because ultimately Christ died. So what is this new covenant? He says, now you're married to another. To who? To him who was raised from the dead. Here's the crazy thing. I hope you're staying with me. God was in a covenant with mankind. We could never get out of that covenant unless one party died, either mankind or God. God could have just wiped us, off, wiped us out and started all over again. Instead, God's like, let me die. So now you can get out of that covenant and enter into a new one. With who? To the one who died and rose again. That's who. That you and I can now have a new covenant with this God, with Jesus Christ. It is unbelievable to see, to see what Paul says. Like, we should have died. We broke the covenant, but instead God died. And the, and the beautiful thing is, Paul goes, and this is the new covenant we're in now. We're in the new covenant with him who raised from the dead. We now have a new marriage covenant. Same person, same God, but hold a new covenant. One was about law and rules and what you do. This covenant is one about love. One was about you better do these things to be right with me. One is I did these things for you. One was based off keeping rules. One was based off grace and love. And this is the new covenant you and I are part of. And it's unbelievable. I mean, you and I live like in the best time in human history in the sense that we're under the new covenant. Like, I, I don't know if I fully get this. I really don't know if this is something I fully get. I want to actually point this out. I'm so thankful that it's not like Christians one day said, you know what? This Jewish law thing is really hard. Let's just make up a new covenant. And then Jesus is like, yeah, let's do that. No, I'm actually really thankful the old covenant promised there would be a new covenant. If there was no promise of a new covenant, then we're just a bunch of like heretics. But there was a promise of a new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31. And here's what it says, Jeremiah 31, 31. God says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. The Spirit gives life. See, the old covenant said, you know what? One day there will be a new covenant. One day there will be a new covenant. We didn't just make this up. Jesus wasn't like, oh, let's just start the new covenant. Jesus was like, hey, remember the, the prophecy of Jeremiah? Here's the new covenant. You and I now get to be a part of the spirit which gives life. Again, I don't know if I fully get this. I, there's something about knowing Jewish history, Jewish tradition, Jewish scriptures, because in reality, it's all been pointing to Christ, pointing to the new covenant. We have to like appreciate how hard it was for them for us to appreciate what we have right now in Christ, because it's unbelievable what you and I have. You know, a few things just to make clear from this text in Jeremiah 30, 31. Here's what the new covenant is. Like, what is the new covenant? It is internalization of God's law. It's internal change. The law could never bring internal change. The law could only bring external change. Stop doing this. Okay. But the new covenant, God writes it on your hearts, and it can bring internal change. I, I, I couldn't change, but God can change you and me inwardly because he writes his law on our hearts. This is what the new covenant does. It brings internal change. Uh, you know what it does? It brings intimacy and fellowship with God. I will be their God. They shall be my people. This new covenant is where God says, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I'm going to walk with you. You're going to know me. It communicates intimacy, relationship, fellowship, not some distant, I'm going to sacrifice an animal, and hopefully God sees my faith in that and forgives me. No, 
the idea is I actually have a sacrifice. Again, his name is Jesus, and I can know him and walk with him. I'm married to another, to him who was raised from the dead. And it communicates intimacy and fellowship. Another thing is this. It communicates community versus individualism. The idea is I will be their God. They will be my people. It's not just I'm saved alone in a bubble. Like, we're saved together. You're called out of an individualistic lifestyle to be community following Jesus together. And that is what we're trying to do here. We're trying to say, don't follow Jesus alone. He's our God. We are his people. We want to follow Jesus together in this. Next, it means unmediated knowledge of God, for they shall all know me. That you and I now see the world differently. We don't just see beauty of creation. We see the, we see the great painter behind that. We see the great author behind that. We go, man, I see creation in a whole new way. I see everything in a whole new way. That I just want to know, I want to know his vastness, that he's eternal, that he's infinite. Like there's this hunger for God. I will say the greatest change in people's lives when they are born again is that they're just hungry for God. When someone's experienced the grace of God, they're just like, I want to know him. It's like when you first fall in love with someone. I want to know everything about you. And you can't get enough and when you believe in Jesus, receive the free gift of salvation in Jesus, it's like, I can't get enough of Jesus. I just want to know more. I want to enjoy him more. This is what happens. And then lastly, this is unconditional forgiveness of sins in the new covenant. Here's the idea. Meaning, in the old covenant, the sacrifice could only cover your sins temporarily for a short period of time. It could never truly take away or remove sin completely. It could only cover sin. And the idea is, in Christ, he doesn't just cover our sins. Our sins were obviously placed on Jesus. And it's not just covered, it's removed and placed on him. I have complete forgiveness. They had to offer sacrificial animals all the time. We have, it had them once through the person of Jesus. This is like, we have actual true forgiveness of sins. My point with this is you and I have a better covenant. Paul is saying, don't let these Judaizers who are going around saying, believe in Jesus and keep the law, they're missing the point. God's law is written on our hearts. We shall know him. We have the promise of the new covenant. Why this is so meaningful for you and I. I want you to know that you can have intimacy with God. That means following Jesus should be an adventure. That means when you wake up, there should be a side of it that's like, good morning, Jesus. Here I am. What do you want to do today? How do you want to use me? Who do you want me to talk to? How can I be available? It's as you're driving your car, God, help me see things I might not see. It's at your coffee shop or t- talking to a coworker. God, who can I pray with right now that might be hurting? And it's not like, what do I need to do to be right with God? It's this ongoing active relationship. It's just, I'm just going to enjoy you, God. I want to make myself available to you, God. I want to make sure, like, you know, like, I'm like, I'm like, you know, you'll text your wife kind of randomly in the day, like, thinking of you, love you. The idea is, like, I want to do it with you, God. I don't have to do these things. I don't have to read my Bible. I don't have to pray. I get to. I want to. Something's changed in me. You see, the law says you have to. Grace says you get to. And this is what changes when you've really tasted and seen the Lord is good. The Spirit gives life. The Spirit gives life. The letter kills. The Spirit gives life. I really do believe this. If you're still kind of finding yourself in the Christian version that is like, feels like death, that's not, that's not the gospel of grace. If you kind of find yourself in this version of Christianity where you have to go to church, you have to be in groups, you have to give, you have, that's not the true Christianity, the true way of following Jesus that Jesus intends for us. That's not. The Spirit gives life. There's something where like, man, I can't wait to just be in, I can't wait to pray with others. I can't wait to give to God and what he's doing. This idea of like, it just changes you so internally. I would almost challenge and say, if you still feel like you're living under the law, maybe you haven't experienced the grace of God. Maybe you haven't tasted and seen the Lord is good. But when you do this, something changes. Again, I don't have to read. I don't have to pray. I don't have to text my wife. If you had to come to me and say, Josiah, you better kiss your wife. uh, There'd be something wrong, right? Like I want to, I get to. There's something about Jesus when you get to know him, you go, oh my gosh, I want to pray. I want to read. I want to be a part of this. And that's only when the spirit of God does that. He gives life. 
life. He gives life. All we can pray is, God, breathe your breath of life on us. Like, God, open up eyes I could never open. God, wake us up. Help us not play the Christian game a little bit. You know, today's the day of salvation. Today's the day you want to wake us up a bit. And I want to invite everyone into that. Saying the Spirit wants to give you life. I, I so believe that the Spirit gives life. God wants to give life. God wants us to enjoy Him. Let's enjoy Him. So here's the thing. Paul, like I said, used this word new covenant one other time, and that was in 1 Corinthians 11. And here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 11. Stay with me. Paul said, Jesus also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Will you grab your communion right now? You see, we can't talk about the new covenant and not talk about the new covenant and not partake of the new covenant. And, and I want to point this out. Know what's so cool? Jesus on uh, the Lord's Supper, when Jesus was taking the Passover meal with his disciples, it was Passover. Know what Passover is? Passover was reaffirming the covenant God made with Moses. Passover was, let's take this bread that reminds us of the bread of affliction that they had to make and take in a hurry. And Jesus goes, hey, I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of affliction. I was afflicted so you don't have to be. You eat of me. Hey, my blood, my blood was shed for your sins. Hey, the lamb's blood on the first Passover that was spread on the doorposts, wherever there was applied blood, there was forgiveness. There was Passover. Hey, the blood of Jesus, when it's applied to your life, God passes over your sins. And that is the idea. The idea was Jesus for the new covenant, the new covenant Paul mentions, Jesus was taking the old covenant and saying, I want to take the same ritual and make it new. I want to take the first covenant, how they remembered it, we're going to do it the same way, but a new covenant way. The blood that they remember was the lamb's blood smeared on the doorpost. You're going to remember my blood smeared on the cross. Hey, the bread of affliction, I'm the bread of life. You to me, you will live. And so Jesus even takes the whole uh, Passover meal and it shows how it really speaks of him and shows how now he introduces the new covenant. So we're talking about the new covenant. We're going to partake of the new covenant. When you guys look at that little cracker, we say, Jesus, thank you for your body that was broken for me. God, your body was broken so I could be made whole. Jesus, thank you for your blood that was shed for me. Without the shedding of blood, there would be no forgiveness of sins. Thank you for your blood that was shed. There's forgiveness of sins now. You see, we partake of this new communion, this new covenant, and we look back to the old one and go, ours is so much better. Ours is so, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God so you and I don't have to. Jesus was that Passover lamb who took away the sins of the world. Thank you, Jesus. And listen, we just want this to be a time of celebration, praising him, thanking him, and enjoying him. So uh, we can't not teach on this and not take it. So here's what we're going to ask. We're just going to pray. I'm going to ask that when you are ready during the worship time, just eat and drink and celebrate Jesus. If you do not yet believe in Jesus, believe on Jesus, trust in Jesus. Look at that and remember how Jesus paid the price for your sins. But we are going to eat and drink. So why don't we just bow our head, close our eyes, focus our hearts and our attention on Jesus for a little bit.